We are in Genesis 21, the first 21 verses this morning. Genesis 21. And I've titled this lesson, Promise, Joy, and Conflict. And we're going to see that all of these things are from God. He brings blessings through His promises. He brings conflict through some of His promises. And He gives joy to those who trust Him. And that's what we're going to see here. Nothing happens by happenstance in the world. Nothing that comes our way is by chance. You may have a dog named Chance that may bring you something. That's a whole different matter. The first eight verses, Genesis chapter 21, the first eight verses, promise fulfilled brings joy. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him. This is emphasized by the author because of the previous escapade that Abraham had with Hagar. This Sarah bore to him Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised <coughs> circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. <coughs> so, now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and all who hear will laugh with me. She also said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? For I have borne him a son in his old age. So the, the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. Now, the promise that was made to Abram and Sarai so long ago now comes to its initial fulfillment. In chapter 12 and verse 7, God promised Abraham for the first time that he would have children who would inherit the land. Abram was 75 years old at that time. About 10 years later, in chapter 15, God again reiterates that promise to Abram that he will have an heir from his own loins. And this is when Abraham believed God and that faith was counted as righteousness to him. This is also when Sarai tries to help God by telling Abram to have a child with Hagar. And Ishmael was born when Abram was 86. Thirteen years later, in chapter 17, God renews his promise to Abram, changing his name and clarifying that his wife Sarah would bear him a son. Now, we've had this excursion with Sodom and Gomorrah the last few weeks, and now we come back in chapter 21, and we see the promise with its first fulfillment. Isaac is born. Abram's a hundred years old. Sarah is ninety. And note the way this is recorded as the chapter opens. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. The Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. These things happen because God cannot deny himself. All of the travails and the mischief that Abram has got his family into do not derail 
what God has said would happen. Man can't foil, can't spoil, can't derail what God has decreed will take place. Sarah had the child at the time that God told Abraham Abraham she would have the child. And recalling the covenant that God made with him in Genesis 17, let's flip over there right now. Look at Genesis 17 and verses 9 and following. This is the covenant. God said to Abraham, as for you, this is 17 verse 9, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. That's the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham, mindful of that, not wanting his son promised and delivered in his old age to be cut off, takes him on the eighth day and circumcises him. And in verse 19 of the chapter we were just in, God also instructed Abraham to name his son Isaac. Nothing left to the whimsy of man. Abraham had fallen on his face and laughed at the idea that he and Sarah would have a child. Do you remember that when God came to him and, and Sarah? He fell down and laughed. In Genesis 18, when Abraham and Sarah are visited by the angel of the Lord and two other angels, Sarah laughs at the idea that she will have a child. The word Isaac in the Hebrew means laughter. Strong says it means mocking laughter. God doesn't have a sense of humor. They laugh at the idea that God can do something. God gives them a child and tells them to name that child laughter. Sarah now laughs with joyful mirth. God has made me laugh and all who hear will laugh with me. This is, this is joy. This is awesome mirth on her part. What man couldn't really conceive of, God has not only conceived, He's delivered this child that He promised. And she's joyful at this turn of events, this culmination, this fulfillment. She's marveling that as old as she is, she can nurse the child that God has given to them in their old age. And likely two years has passed between verse 7 and verse 8. Isaac, two years old, having survived the trials of infancy, 
You know, it's not a given that an infant is going to survive to adulthood. More so back in the day when medicine was not nearly as advanced as it is today, an understanding of physiology, not nearly what it is today. It was risky being an infant 3,000 years ago. He survives this, and Abraham has a big feast to celebrate this milestone. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Able to eat solid food now. Jews have misappropriated this feast, and you might read in some of their literature that they have a feast to celebrate the circumcision of their sons. So not two, two years or three years after birth, but eight days after birth they have the feast. Abraham's focus was not on cutting the foreskin off of his son. It was in that son living to a point to where he's now on solid food. There's hope for this young man. Hebrews 5, Hebrews 5, starting in verse 11. We talked yesterday morning about who the author is, and I'm not going to get into that. That's not the point this morning. If I can get these pages open. Here we go. Hebrews 5, in verse 11. He's talking to these people about Christ as the high priest. And he says in verse 11, Of whom we have much to say... And hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So this coming to the point where he could eat solid food is even spiritually significant for us. The Bible doesn't say that we should never drink milk because the milk of the gospel is always good for our spiritual bones. But the Scriptures do say that there ought to come a time in our spiritual life when we, like Isaac in his physical life, we no longer drink only milk, the Scripture said, but we are on solid food, meat of the deeper things of God. To grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ is our call, which means we're not satisfied with having only milk. Let's move on, starting in verse 9 of our passage. 9 through 13, promise fulfilled brings conflict. Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abram, scoffing. Therefore, she said to Abraham, cast out this bondswoman and her son. For the son of this bondswoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. 
Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice. For in Isaac your seed shall be called. Yet I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman because he is your seed. With the arrival of her promised son, Sarah is now bitten by her scheme to assist God some 15 years earlier when she gave her slave Hagar to Abram to bear him a son. Sarah noticed Ishmael mocking her, laughing out loud in merriment or scorn. It's a different word, Ishmael laughing, than the word behind Isaac. You recall from chapter 16, right after Hagar conceived Ishmael, Sarah blamed Abram for the emotional distress that she experienced. 16.5, Sarah said to Abram, My wrong be upon you. I gave my maiden to your embrace And when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between you and me. Now, got to have somebody else to blame. Goes back to our first parents in the garden. Got to have somebody to point to. Not self. We're never the one responsible for the consequences that we're suffering. It's got to be somebody else. That's the human condition. We see... We have seen, too, in this text, chapter 21, of this of the fallout from this ill-conceived sin of Sarah's. She can't tolerate having Hagar and Ishmael around anymore. And she tells Abram to drive them away. This is the same as being cut off from your covenant people. Like that covenant of circumcision I read. Anybody who's not circumcised on the eighth day is to be cut off. Ishmael and Hagar are being cut off. From Abraham, because Sarah will not have them as joint heirs with Isaac. This language populates the Mosaic Covenant in generations to come. Those who are not obedient to this, this, or this, they are to be cut off. That's the sense of being excommunicated. You see it in some cultures to where if a, a child does something that the father can't stomach, he will say, you are dead to me. That's being cut off from your people. Paul quotes Sarah in Galatians 4. In Galatians 4, 21 through 26, And 28 through 21. It is written. Tell me. You who desire to be under the law. Do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons. The one by a bondwoman. The other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. Which things are symbolic? For these two, for these are the two covenants, 
The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with their children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. Now I want to jump to verse 28. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? And here he quotes Sarah. Cast out the bondwoman with her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. It was never God's plan for Ishmael to be the child of promise. Abram was not happy about Sarah's demand. He wanted much prosperity for Ishmael. You may recall from chapter 17 of Genesis how he pleaded with God to accept Ishmael as the promised seed. God would have none of it. The promised seed must come from you and Sarah. Despite man's unbelief, the promised seed would come through those who were beyond childbearing age to be even considered dead to the whole idea. We see now one example of how different our minds work than does God. His mind. Our tendency is to be fleshly minded. To esteem the work of our hands. To esteem the work of our minds. And to cherish family according to the flesh over family according to the Spirit. Since we who have the Spirit are prone to this way of thinking, why do we marvel that those outside who have not the Spirit are that way? This is actually kindness of God for even unregenerate people to love their family. The, the family is the local government that God has given to mankind. And it's unnatural when a mother doesn't like her children. It's a natural thing. It's a good thing that God has given even those who don't know Him to love their family, to love their children, to love their mother and father. And you see how deeply Abram felt through his son Isaac, Ishmael rather, in verse 11 of our text, the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son Ishmael. Yet, Yahweh tells him not to be concerned, not to be grieved, not to be upset about the plight of Hagar or Ishmael, but to do what Sarah says to him to do. It's not that God is telling husbands, do only what your wives tell you to do. What we have here is the decree of God being worked out in the lives of people. And in order for his plan to be worked out, in this instance, Abram must do what his wife says to him. Cast out the slave woman and her son. 
And then he reiterates the promise to Abram, your seed will be traced through Isaac. And God reminds Abraham of his condescension in promising to make a great nation of Ishmael, a descendant of yours, another singular seed of Abraham's, but not according to the promise, the promise. Yeah, Ishmael, it was promised he would be made a great nation. That's if you want to say it's a lowercase p promise. The promise made that would be fulfilled through Isaac with the spiritual blessings that come by being found in Christ, that's got a capital letter in the front of it. Now let's look at the last part of our passage here, verses 14 through 21. This is the conflict that gets worked out. Abraham rose early in the morning took bread and a skin of water, and putting it on her shoulder, he gave it to the boy. He gave it and the boy to Hagar and sent her away. Then she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba, and the water in the skin was used up, and she placed the boy under one of the shrubs. And then she went down and sat down from him at the distance of about a bow shot. For she said to herself, let me not see the death of the boy. So she sat opposite him, lifted her voice, and wept. And God heard the voice of the lad. Then the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, What ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation." Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. So God was with the lad and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. He dwelt in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt Yahweh had made a promise to Hagar and Abraham concerning Ishmael. In uh, 1620, 1610-12, the angel of the Lord said to her, Hagar, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with a child, you shall bear a son, you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man, his hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of all his brothers. And then in 1720, As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Speaking to Abraham, behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget twelve princes and I will make him a great nation. There would come one in the promise line who would beget twelve princes. And we know them as the twelve tribes of Israel. Ishmael would have sons, twelve princes, different tribes, not of Israel. This promise made to Ishmael is a different nature than the promise regarding Isaac. Ishmael's birth is according to the flesh. 
desired by, contrived by, and delivered by the flesh. Isaac's birth was according to the Spirit who gives life to that which is dead, not just biologically, but more importantly, spiritually. We who were dead spiritually in our sins and trespasses, He has now made us alive with Him in Christ. The promise to Abraham regarding Ishmael, regarding Ishmael is a temporal one, serving a purpose in time. The promise to Abraham regarding Isaac is a spiritual one, serving an eternal purpose that has invaded time. One represents slavery corresponding to the earthly Jerusalem, as Paul wrote. The other represents freedom corresponding to the heavenly Jerusalem. Just with that one passage out of Galatians 4, I don't understand those who think that God's redemptive plan involves reconstituting Jerusalem as it was so that we can now go through the offering of sacrifices in order to make way for the earthly millennium of Christ's reign along with David. There's a large swath of people who believe that to be the case. I don't get it. Abraham, heeding the word of God, did as Sarah told him. He gave them modest provisions and sent the slave woman and her son away. Now, Hagar rather wandered off to a place that is said to be some 12 miles away from Gerar, which is where Abraham was. Now, we don't know how much time elapsed between verses 14 and 15. 14, Abraham rose early in the morning, in the morning took bread and water, and sent them off. 15, and the water and the skin was used up. We don't know how much time was elapsed. A couple of days, three or four days, I don't know, a week. Some time has gone by. Being in the desert without water is a life-threatening experience. You can go into West Texas and be in desert. And if you don't have water, go to Big Bend. There ain't much civilization out there. I've not been there, but I've read about it. You can get out there and be away from food and water, and you can die. It's a hazardous situation. There ain't no convenience stores where Hagar is. She doesn't find any water looking around, so she gives up. The boy, 14 years old, he's a man in that culture. At 13 years in the later developed Hebrew community, that's when a bar mitzvah was held for the males. He was considered an adult at 13. This 14-year-old boy is a man. He puts him, he puts him under a shade, under a, a bush to be shaded so the sun won't dry him out too fast. And she removes herself, the scripture says, the distance of a bow shot. This is before crossbows. John Gill says that the Jews had a saying that two bow shots make a mile. Now, they didn't use miles back then, so I guess Gill's putting it in his own vernacular. The distance, however many cubits make a mile. So a bow shot is about half a mile in our language, our measurement. So she's about 2,500, 2,600 feet away from him. That's a good distance. She doesn't want to hear him cry as he dies. 
Who could blame her? She wept loudly mourning his death. And Moses writes that God heard the voice of the boy. But Moses doesn't tell us that the boy made a sound. Only that Hagar wept loudly. But he heard the boy crying. In response to the boy crying, the angel of God, which we've discovered through our passage through Genesis, most likely represents the Lord Jesus in his pre-incarnate condition, heard from heaven. And he called down to Hagar. Now, here's an interesting thing. The, The New King James says, What ails you, Hagar? The Hebrew manuscript, according to Strong's, I'm not a scholar. I just look at what it says. The Hebrew says, what to you? Man, what what sense does that make in English? Kind of obscure. So you have different translations. What ails you in the New King James? Other translations say, what's wrong? What troubles you? Or what is it? See, I point this out only to let you know how difficult it is to translate from one language to another. And when when language changes like English does over the centuries, one phrase that may have made sense 600 years ago may not make the same sense to you and me today. Translating is a difficult task. And it's a difficult task for us to be mindful of the context so that we don't automatically assume a 21st century American English understanding of what we read in Scripture. So, that's a rabbit trail, and I'll depart from that again. All of these phrases mean the same thing in our tongue, but one may ring more true with you than the others do. The point is that Moses uses this language to show us that God condescends to draw near to Hagar and ask her, what ails you? It's not that he don't know what she's going through. It's like when he approached Adam in the cool of the garden. Where are you, Adam? Who told you you were naked? He's not seeking information. He's letting people know. He's letting people that he's got a relationship know that he is with them. The song that Bette Midler sang a generation ago that said God is out there. Theologically, we would call that transcendent. Yes, he is out there. But he's not only out there. He is imminent, theologians say, transcendent and imminent. He is with us. He was drawing near to Hagar. If we recognize that the God of the Bible is not just some idea, If the Spirit of God has made you alive to Him and you recognize that He is with you, that ought to affect the way that we think and talk and act. Just as when Abram didn't argue with God about obeying Sarah, just as Abram didn't dawdle or disagree with God about taking his eight-day-old boy and circumcising him, we who realize that we are close to God because He has drawn close to us, we ought to be walking in humility and love towards one another. 
God is beyond what we can truly comprehend. But He is, as He tells us, closer than any brother can be to us. I'm not real close to my brother in the flesh. I don't talk to him but once every five, ten years. We just don't have much in common. I spend a lot more time talking to my brothers and sisters in the Spirit because I have much in common with y'all. And the things that we have in common are not of this world and they will not perish when this world does. Yahweh reiterates that Ishmael has been heard and he reminds Hagar of the promise that he made in Genesis 16 that he's going to make a great nation of Ishmael. And he opens her eyes and she sees a well. She didn't see this well. She's caught up in her circumstances. She's caught up in self-pity. She's mourning, rightfully mourning, the death of her son. And she can't see. God opens her eyes. She sees a well. If God had not opened her eyes, she would have perished in the desert along with her son Ishmael. It was the work of God to open them so that she could see the well and get water. Jesus comes and He opens the eyes of His people and He says, I am the living water. All of these things that were written are pointing us to the One who would come in due time. Having eyes that cannot see is the common affliction of man. The only cure is for the triune God to open them. As He did to those disciples on the road to Emmaus. The water that Hagar found is a shadow of the spring of spiritual water that would come from the rock in the wilderness and be given to all whose eyes have been opened to see the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. Ishmael's great nation would be a foil for Isaac's temporal nation. The child according to the flesh prosecuted the one according to the Spirit. Isaac's temporal nation was a shadow of the spiritual nation that is being gathered from every nation, tribe, and tongue on the earth in fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. See, the promise made to Abraham was from the beginning bigger than national Israel. Regarding Isaac's temporal nation, recall the promise to his father from Genesis 15. This one... Ishmael shall not be your heir, but the one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, look now toward the heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he, God, said to him, Abraham, so shall your descendants be. As many as the stars. I was listening to the Bible in my car while I was driving around the other day, and I'm in Deuteronomy. And as it opens up in Deuteronomy 1, chapter 10, Moses, 1 verse 10 rather, Moses is describing the nation of Israel just before they cross the river Jordan. He's not allowed to go, and he's given them a recapitulation of everything before they go in. And he says in verse 10 of chapter 1, The Lord your God has multiplied you, and here you are today as the stars of heaven in multitude. Promise fulfilled. 
your children will be like the stars in the heaven. And in a temporal sense, this came to be before they went into the promised land. This serves as a type of the spiritual people. Your children are as the stars of the heaven. Before we enter the promised land and find rest for our souls, each one of us must be constituted as a spiritual person according to promise. See, the nation of Israel was constituted as a nation as numerous as the stars before they entered the promised land. You and I can't enter the promised land, rest in Christ, unless we are constituted and according with that promise made to Abraham. Now, this passage here ends with another gap in time. Verse 20 and 21, God was with the lad and he grew and he dwelt in the wilderness, became an archer. He dwelt in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. God was with Ishmael as he grew and he became known as a skilled archer, a warrior as indicated as I read earlier in Genesis 16. On this topic, on this item here, John Gill observed, quote, living in a wilderness, delighting in hunting and killing wild beasts and robbing and plundering all that passed by. He would be a quarrelsome of a quarrelsome temper and warlike disposition, continually engaged in fighting with his neighbors. His seed should be large and numerous and spread themselves and reach to the borders of all their brethren, end quote. And we find in the 12 tribes of Ishmael in Genesis 25 Kendar is the third-born son. Third-born of Ishmael is a guy named Kendar. In Isaiah 21, 16 and 17, we read that the men of Kendar, who were renowned as archers, are going to be defeated by Yahweh on Israel's account. Generations and generations and generations and generations, the people of Ishmael, they're still vaunted as warriors with bow and arrow, and they're persecuting the seed of Isaac, and God's going to settle their hash. That's what he's saying to them in in, uh, Isaiah. Now, we see in verse 21 of our text that Ishmael dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, thought to be close to Mount Sinai, the wilderness in which the Israelites wandered. It was a holy, dry, barren, uncultivated, uninhabitable to men, destitute of villages, houses, and cottages, John Gill said. And this hostile environment puts skin on the the saying, necessity is the mother of invention. If you're out there on your own, you've got to learn how to survive. And killing wild animals in order to live, bow and arrows, what you got back in that day. You got no 20-gauge shotgun. So you become proficient with what's available to you. His life taught him to value freedom. He's not tied down to anybody or anything. So it is with many of his decisions. Now, Hagar went to her home country to find a wife for her son. She was an Egyptian woman, you recall, when Sarah gave him to Abram it said in verse uh, verse 1 of chapter 16, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So she was from Egypt, and she goes back to her mother country to find a son, a, a wife rather, for her son. 
Hagar had no husband. She's been cut off from Abram. It's a risky proposition for a single mother. So what does she do? She reconnects with her motherland, with her home folks, in a attempt to forge an alliance of some sort, I'm thinking, so that she won't be as vulnerable. Abram and Sarah were left with their son Isaac. Hagar and Ishmael is left with her son, are left together. Both couples, both Ishmael and Hagar and Abram, Sarah and Isaac, both of these families are at the cusp of something big that God is doing in their midst. Now, I want to wrap up quickly. Henry Law said that there are two categories of people on earth. He said, one race is wholly natural, born after nature's mode. They live as men according to the flesh. Their thoughts, their feelings, their desires, their hopes look not beyond this world's horizon. The other race is wholly spiritual. They are, of the, they are the sons of God's eternal promise. They are born indeed in nature's wilderness and in the prison house of the law, but the Spirit in due time marvelously visits them. He gives them a new nature, new desires, new hopes, new powers, new prospects. By His own power, He opens their eyes to see their natural condition, their ruin under the law, the beauty of Christ's finished work, their full deliverance in Him. He imparts faith to flee to Him, to cleave to Him, to love Him, to serve Him. They are no more carnal, but spiritual. They come out from the world and are separate. To God they live, to God they die. Such are their two seeds. Ishmael and Isaac are their types. End quote. This is, this is the contrast that we see throughout all of Scripture. Children of the flesh, children of the promise. The lesson to be learned shows us that those of the flesh will be cast out while those of the promise will be welcomed and celebrated. None should take for granted that since their mother or father was a Christian, that he himself is. Ishmael stands to show us, just as Esau does, that having a parent who is favored by God does not mean that we can rest on our parents' relationship with God. It's been well said that God doesn't have any grandkids. Every person who claims Christ must have personal faith in the Son of God. Those who trust in their physical lineage will be cast out. Those who trust in the finished work and the person of Christ will be welcomed in. Please hear this. Having nice things in this life, air conditioning and heat in your house and car, food in the pantry, good health, that allows you to work, that allows you to do hobbies, does not mean that you have favor with God. This thinking is hazardous. It's the prosperity gospel. It's the same basis as Satan's temptation of Christ offering all the things of the world if you will bow down and serve Me. Now, none of these things are evil. But they don't mean that you have favor with God. Every person, 
Every person has to look unto Christ. Likewise, being poor in this life, no car, no house, no food, no health. These don't mean that you're under God's wrath. All things that come our way are designed by God to lead us to Him. Let us look to the hand of God and resist the siren call of our flesh. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Now, I found a, an old hymn that I want to point out the lyrics to right quick. Pilgrims we are to Canaan bound. Our journey lies along this road. This wilderness we travel round to reach the city of our God. And here as travelers we meet before we reach the fields above to sit around our master's feet and tell the wonders of his love. Oft have we seen the tempest rise, the world and Satan, hell and sin, like mountains seem to reach the skies with scarce a gleam of hope between. But still as oft as troubles come, our Jesus sends some cheering ray, and that strong arm shall guide us home, which thus protects us, by the way, a few more days or months or years in this dark desert to complain, a few more sighs, a few more tears, and we shall bid adieu to pain. In this world you will have trouble, but have faith. Christ has overcome the world. May the God of all peace be our peace and keep us drifting away from the truth and turning into fables because we cannot keep ourselves. God must do it. Just as He gave a child to Abram and Sarah in their old age, He gives birth to us, but He also must keep us just like He kept them. Kept them alive so He could demonstrate His power. So He keeps us alive so that we might serve one another. Let's pray. Father, I do thank You.